0: Hey, welcome to KSL Plus, the digital-only newscast where we dive deep into some of the biggest issues of the day. So after every natural disaster, pandemic, or other traumatic event, there are ripples felt for generations. The Black Plague, for example, led to the rise of workers' rights. The Spanish Flu was a catalyst behind modern architecture Apartments with radiators to keep a unit warm, even if the windows are open, to allow fresh air in. Units with private bathrooms, not shared, and wide communal hallways. The Spanish flu put many European countries on the path to centralized medicine. World War II inspired our own employer-based insurance. Young adults graduating college this year won't remember ever going to the gate to pick someone up at the airport. Most were just infants on 9-11. And of course, we can't forget what's happening right now. The families of 2.6 million people around the world who lost their lives to COVID and countless more who have been impacted financially, mentally or physically. But what changes will we see 5, 10, 20, 100 years down the road that will trace back to the year 2020 and covid one year in, we're looking at changes to healthcare specifically that will likely stick around as we head into what many call our new normal. We spoke to Dr. Russell Vinick, the chief medical operations officer for University of Utah Healthcare, and Dr. Patrick Carroll, Intermountain's Mountains St. George Regional Hospital medical director. Here are a few changes they hope or expect are here to stay.
1: I think that we all have. Been a little bit more cognizant of uh, our activities and our interactions with each other, and the impact that potentially could have on spread of disease. Um, as we move forward, I hope those are lessons that we haven't that we that we don't forget. Um, we have seen a dramatic decrease in influenza this year. We have seen a dramatic decrease in respiratory syncytial virus or RSV um, among children. Uh, our pediatric um, volumes, inpatient volumes, have dramatically decreased. Uh, the volumes of patients uh, here in St. George with our uh, pediatric unit are considerably lower than previous winters, uh, and that's a, that's a great thing. So how do we take the lessons and, and move forward? I'd like to see us, and I hope we can be in a situation where we get the best of both worlds, where um, we're not... We get back to not needing to wear masks, and I do believe um, we're, we're getting there um, however, when i'm sick, when my uh, family member's sick, when my neighbor is sick, um, to reinforce that it is okay it's all right to wear a mask in fact it's encouraged to wear a mask to prevent spread of, of respiratory viruses and if we can do that, we may be able to have the majority of people not wearing masks and a minority. There are countries in the world that have been doing this for, for a very long time and doing it successfully. I hope we've taken some of the stigma away from wearing masks when you're feeling a little bit under the weather and uh, preventing spread of that to, to other people.
0: This flu season, the US saw one pediatric flu death where we usually see around 200. Experts say that shows hand washing Staying home when you're sick and wearing masks really help and can help in the future. They mentioned advancements in medical research and the way doctors and scientists share their findings and the way we
2: consume
0: that information.
2: MRNA vaccines and adenovirus vector vaccines, those have been around for decades or more, Um, but they haven't really hit prime time Um, now. They've proven very well, and in part because of the significant time and effort and money that's gone into the COVID research, um, they've been able to prove both of these as reliable ways to create vaccines. And so the potentials are so broad, um, not just in treating other diseases or infections or viruses, but but also cancers, for example. There's quite a few... Um, different cancer vaccine trials that are underway um, where you can literally cause one's own immune system to attack cancer cells better. Uh, And that gets a bit complicated, but having proven this technology is gonna go a long way to expedite treatment for, for many different diseases, cancer probably
1: being highest on the list. What we saw was a scientific community worldwide that really came together and in rapid fashion came up with answers to a lot of those questions. And we continue to hone those answers and and learn more. But one of the big takeaways that I've seen is the uh, the public, I think, has been able to see medicine and science in action. And that's been, I think, at times frustrating for people because that's led to changing recommendations you know, from one week to the next or one month to the next. I think that's been confusing for, uh, for people early on, but it's important for people to see that, uh, see that happening um, because that's how science works. Um, and that's how, we, that's how we learn and make some pretty quick changes. So, you know, one of the takeaways I'd like to see is that we, the general public, have a better understanding of medical developments and scientific progress and see how um, we can make changes on the fly for, for better care and better prevention. have been doing it for many, many years. They're the expert. Can I learn how to change my oil? Can I learn how to do a few things on my car? Certainly. Um, am, I, am I going to be at the same level as that mechanic? Uh, I'm not I'm not without hours and hours and hours, and truly probably years of years of experience. Um, the same is true for uh, probably every every profession and um, and so one of the challenges that I think we we face in this information age is trying to identify which information is accurate information and which is not accurate information and more and more, I think what we're seeing is um, is individuals, um, and I think we're all guilty of this. I, you know, I'm certainly guilty of this. Um, reading information in a particular area, and feeling like we have, uh, feeling like we're an expert, feeling like we're, you know, we have as, as much information as much as the as the person that's truly that's truly dedicated their life to that to that specialty or to that um, area. And so as we do that, as we move forward, I think, um, I think what we need to do is identify ways that, that ex- experts can be identified as experts. And, um, and those that are not experts certainly, you know, can and should have a voice. We've got to, you know, ways that that can happen. Um, but to identify themselves as, um, as an interested party, not necessarily as, a, as an expert. Um, so it's a it's a big opportunity, and I think Shelby, that's why we've seen more and more doctors, um, in social media, whether that's you know Facebook or YouTube or Instagram or whatever the you know the uh, news outlets being more vocal. Historically, that didn't happen uh, as often. Historically, physicians really communication was through academic medical journals and academic scientific conferences. But because the information, because there are so many people sharing information that are not experts i think it's it's incumbent upon us as the medical as medical experts to be more uh, available to be um, more vocal to share that information so there's um, there's not a vacuum um, of of accurate and reliable information from reliable sources so we as a profession i think have to have to take that on and make sure that we're being um, appropriately transparent and visible with the with information.
0: And of course, healthcare providers' mental health is at the forefront of their
2: minds. Most of us physicians, we can handle anything for a week or two or a few weeks. We trained um, and worked 80, 100 hundred-hour weeks routinely, and some of us still do. Um, but to do that for months and months on end, uh, and the mental toll that takes on our staff, uh, is something that we really have to think through for the future. How do you prepare for that?
0: You may have seen, we had an in-depth conversation about that a few weeks ago. You can find that episode on ksltv.com slash KSL plus that's KSL and on the KSL TV app, but there was one big change both doctors brought up
1: telehealth telemedicine
0: our ksl plus producer shelby sat down with carrie pelicanis the intermountain connect care executive director to see how telehealth is growing and what it could mean for marginalized communities
3: okay let's start broadly how much was telehealth and connect care being used pre-pandemic and how has that grown in the last year
4: the growth is, is very hard to measure. It's, um, it, the numbers are so large. It's, it's crazy when you talk about it, but I'll give you an example of where we were with just video visits at Intermountain. Um, prior to the pandemic, we were struggling to do about 10 video visits for basically a provider to call their patient in their home environment or in a non clinical setting. Um, we were doing about 10 a, a week. Um, and then in the height of the pandemic, we were up to about six to 7,000 per week. Um, so we rapidly scaled uh, from that 10 to the six to 7,000. We had a, a just shy of about 100 providers in the, our system that were trained in doing telehealth before the pandemic. Now, almost the entirety of our 2,500 plus providers have access to telemedicine now and telehealth. Um, and so it, we went from... Not even hitting the mark of uh, of a percentage of of uh, visits provider visits that occur being telehealth to where now we average around fifteen percent of all of our visits with patients occur through a telehealth environment. Um, During the very height of the pandemic, that was up to close to fifty percent.
3: Wow, I I knew it was going to be a dramatic increase, but that's beyond drastic. I don't even think there's a word. To describe it. Well,
4: especially to somebody like me, I've been working in telehealth for 15 years, and so um, I, I described this to somebody yesterday. I, I spent the better part of my career in telehealth explaining to people what telehealth was, and it hit me last weekend when the Golden Globes did a joke telehealth visit with the, the uh, stars and their doctors, that I don't longer have to explain to people what telehealth is. It, it's now the norm. Um, And I would have never thought that would happen in the speed that it happened. Um, I I definitely knew the capabilities because that was my area of expertise, but um, you know, it's just been delightful for those of us in telehealth to finally say, see, I told you this was going to happen and this is going to work. So yeah, it's been fun.
3: Yeah. That was definitely one of my favorite parts of the show as well. It was just this communal experience that we just, We all get it right now.
4: Well, and for me, I flash back to, gosh, 10 years ago, where I stood in front of the Baltimore Society of Medicine and tried to explain what telemedicine was to them. And, you know, I was, you would have thought I was describing unicorns. And, you know, would I have said, oh, yeah, 10 years from now on the Golden Globes, there's going to be this joke skit about telehealth. No, but, you know, that's just, so I, I say now I no longer have to explain it to the patients. Um, now I just have to help providers learn how to utilize the system appropriately and effectively.
3: So that kind of goes into my next question. I know we talked about about how uh, helpful this is for patients, but how has it been for, for providers? I know I had a telehealth appointment a few months ago, um, and my doctor was also seeing me from home. We were both in our rooms talking to each other. Um, so how has that changed? Um, kind of the way providers work, especially in clinical settings where you're just going in for a checkup.
4: Yeah. And again, you know, I I come from a jaded perspective because I was doing it. uh, I'm a nurse practitioner. I was doing a hybrid environment for many years when I was building telehealth, Um, but really there's a, a lot of uniqueness to being able to see a patient in an environment different from a clinic. If somebody's in their home setting, I could ask you right now, can you take me to your medicine cabinet? And you could show me what's actually in your medicine cabinet instead of trying to remember what's in it. You know, we could talk about what over-the-counter medicines you're taking as well as prescription medicines. I could ask you to take me to your bathroom and look for fall risks. And so I get a window into the, the true environment around you when I do telehealth, especially when you're in your home environment. Or sometimes, even if you're not in your home, you know, asking questions about, okay, you know, so where are you today? And and why are you there? Is it, you know, is it a a situation of homelessness, um, a, a safety issue? There's just so many different aspects involved with what we can do with telehealth. But I think the most important part is we get to see the patient where they are when they need to be seen, versus the patient having to meet our needs and our Environment. Um, From a provider standpoint, I think it's an incredibly great quality of life, especially, you know, some people do telehealth from their office environment. Um, But, you know, if you can do it from home, even better. I have uh, about 30 Connect Care urgent care providers that work 100% from home. And, you know, we cover 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And these folks are actually in multiple states around us, they're not even necessarily in Salt Lake. And so we're looking more and more now at workforce development with telehealth. You know, how could we provide um, jobs to people in re- rural and remote areas where jobs don't exist, but use them as telehealth opportunities? Um, so I think more and more you're going to see that um, everybody from the doctor down looking at how can we utilize telehealth effectively to reach people in areas that otherwise would be difficult to reach and in environments that are different, like schools. Community centers, um, things that you know, employer-based clinics that we can now man through telehealth and provide coverage through.
3: Yeah, I just keep thinking about all of the implications of this. Um, For me personally, I use a wheelchair, and transportation is something that you know I am very fortunate to have a lot of access to. But it's still difficult and can be hard. And but if I can do an appointment via telehealth first and there's a lot of times where it's like do I need to go in do I need to get this checked and be able to just do a telehealth appointment first and make a plan and say, oh you know you don't need to come in here's what you can do uh, at home or this is something that we need to see you in the office and then I can make a, a transportation plan from there but not having to worry about that uh, right away is so beneficial.
4: And the, the physiologic effects of just being frustrated and trying to get to an appointment, even for somebody not in a wheelchair, you know, just taking time off of work, getting in your car, driving there, waiting in a waiting room with other sick people, uh, you know, the exposure to other illnesses. There are so many positives to it. Um, and I think that's one of the, the best things that came out of the pandemic was the fact that we were finally able to put telehealth in a variety of different environments into a variety of different patient populations and and I see more and more the patients asking the providers I did that not too long ago myself when I went to see one of my providers where I said well are, are you doing video visits and they said oh not really I'm thinking about it and I go oh you're breaking my heart because it's my job but. <laughs> Aside from that, you know, let me tell you why you should do this. And, um, yeah, it's just from the patient aspect, from the provider aspect, when you talk about people who need to have other caregivers involved in their care, you know, being able to have a video visit where you can, if you're um, an adult caring for your um, parent, and you're at work, but you want to participate in the visit, or if you're a child where the parent is one of the parents is at work and can't get off, but could video into the visit, there's so many opportunities available there.
3: And this has to have an impact on rural communities as well. Yeah, we've been doing quite a bit of work in
4: um, getting telehealth access out into central and southern Utah. And yes, you know, if you think about somebody in Blanding who needs to see a specialist at uh, Primary Children's or Intermountain in Murray, you know, the, the amount of time, the cost, the frustration of having to travel into Salt Lake and back, especially this time of the year when you don't know if the roads are even going to be open, um, there's rural is where I came from and, and the opportunities for access to care and, and opening up alternative accesses to care because folks in rural environments, um, they just accept that they can't see a specialist. That there isn't a specialist in their town. And so sometimes they'll even not receive care because it's just too difficult to make those arrangements to get in or they can't afford to get there. Um, So, what telehealth does is it allows anybody, regardless of where they live, to receive the same level of care as somebody who's living in an urban environment.
3: Um, Within Utah, have you seen any challenges with people having access to internet, high speed internet in these rural areas? And what about? among our population, of people experiencing homelessness. Um, what are some of the hurdles that you're seeing as telehealth becomes more available?
4: Definitely the, the country at large, when you get outside of urban areas, that um, internet access and broad- broadband access is, is a problem. Now, the government has some programs to help address that, and they have been um, putting quite a bit of money into increasing broadband access in rural areas. But the good thing is that almost every rural environment I've ever worked in and I've worked with quite a few, um, there's a library or a school that has broadband. And so it's one of the reasons why I get excited when I talk about school-based telehealth, how you can turn a school into a community center, a health center by using um, telehealth. Um, But more and more, the technology is also moving towards cellular-based technology And cellular access is much more uh, achievable than broadband access is at large. When we first started in telehealth, it was almost a requirement that you had broadband or internet because the bandwidth needed to be big enough. Now the technology has improved to where a patient can have a smartphone or a tablet and a device that's cellular enabled, and we were able to do the exact same thing.
3: I have a friend who, um, her grandparents live on the Navajo reservation, and They got water to their house seven years ago, and that's in the United States. Um, So I think there are so many areas where Internet access is going to be spotty, and we just don't think about that. When does an audio call work over a video call? Is that a possibility as well for some of these rural areas that may have less access to high-speed Internet?
4: Again, I, I'm somewhat biased here. So I will tell you that whenever I have the option of video, I take the video with the audio. But it, you know, you mentioned your friend on the Navajo Nation. I worked in um, rural Maryland and I had patients who didn't have cell access at their home. The landline was all they had and they didn't have internet or cell. Um, so I'd take what I could get in that instance. But what video does to the audio is it enhances that. So if you're on the phone with somebody and they say, I'm fine, you go, okay they say they're fine. Whereas if I look at you and go, I'm fine. You know, you get to see that the nonverbal, the facial expressions. Um, and it just, it's like the difference between taking a, a photograph or seeing a movie of somebody, you know, you, you get that four dimensional, three dimensional, four dimensional uh, approach to making that evaluation. And and much of what we do in healthcare it does come from our history taking and asking questions, so it's not that you can't use audio, but you know, the ability to be able to see somebody's body movements in relation to what they're saying and their facial mo- movements, and like I said, also that whole external background. You know, looking at—I mean, mine's not very interesting today because I, I just painted my office, but you know, looking at what's in somebody's environment around them that you can't see on an audio—you know, you wouldn't have the access to it in an audio visit.
3: Yeah, like I'm in my high school bedroom because I had to move back in with my parents during the pandemic, and so here we are. See, these are the these are the things that when I do a video visit, I love hearing,
4: you know, um, because it's so interesting, especially when you have an established relationship with a patient where you see them regularly on video, where you go, "Hey, you look like you're someplace different today. Where are you, and what's going on?" And you get to hear the the background stories, and um, children are, are are. a
3: blast to do video visits with because they just say anything yeah i hadn't even thought about that you know kids just want to show you their new toy and um, whereas in a doctor's office maybe they get kind of nervous they don't say things whereas if they're home you know being on the computer is just like talking to grandma and they it can be a lot more comfortable and less intimidating Exactly. I mean,
4: now for them, FaceTime is normal, you know, Zoom is normal. So um I, I sometimes find that I have to get the parents comfortable with the platform, but the kids are great. They're like, oh, you know, they have smart boards in school, they learn off of an interactive technology in their school environment. And like I said, there's so much fun to do video visits with because they will, they'll talk about anything in your environment as well as theirs. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, it's, it is it is just, it's, it's an incredibly interesting and useful technology. And what we can do to offer access to care to folks is what's most important about telehealth.
3: One question I did have as well, uh, I called to set up a telehealth appointment a month ago. And, you know, things may have changed in the last few months, but the receptionist said, oh, what insurance do you have? We want to make sure that your insurance is still covering uh, telehealth appointments. Is that changing? Are we seeing um, insurance companies now saying we're not going to cover this? Or have they started to realize how beneficial this is?
4: Improving with time. And and again, this is another thing that we can thank the pandemic for, because prior to the pandemic, um, insurance companies were very restrictive about where you could receive telehealth, Um, and home wasn't considered a valid place to receive telehealth, you had to go to a clinic-like environment. So, you know, it was still somewhat helpful if you could go to a community health clinic and then have a telehealth visit with a specialist somewhere away. But um, the pandemic issued, uh, the government issued a bunch of waivers, COVID waivers that allowed us to expand telehealth access. And many of the insurance companies have followed suit with that during the pandemic, um, what will happen after 2021 is still a, a great debate, but I think um, there's enough movement and um, not just among health insurance, health company, healthcare companies and providers, but among patients asking for continued access to care um, that we should see a, a continuation of that. And I, and more and more, there is adaption um, at the state and federal level for um including telehealth as a method of delivery for healthcare.
3: Yeah, I know mine personally has been really great. They've added the 98.6 app to our coverage. Um, and I have used that an embarrassing number of times um, just in the middle of the night when I wake up and something doesn't feel quite right and had some other issues. And so being able to open up that, talk to somebody and say, hey, do I need to go get this checked out? Can I wait till the morning? Um, and they always say, you're fine, go back to sleep. Um, but just having that peace of mind has been really helpful.
4: That's, that's a great utilization of it, because otherwise you would have gone to an urgent care and emergency room and had a very large bill, as would your insurance company. So you're reducing the, hot, the cost of healthcare care by using those types of apps. And, um, and we see that and, and we track that with our Connect care system as well. Um, and yes, it's it's interesting now. So many of the insurance companies have bought telehealth practices like you know, MD Live uh, 98.6 or, or have partnered with them because they recognize the value of it. Thanks so much
0: for joining us on KSL Plus this week. Join us next week on the KSL TV app, the website, or Facebook page as we look at changes to businesses from childcare to working from home. See you later.